One of the lessons I've learned in martial arts is that standing still is asking to be hit. If you stand still in business, your competition is going to catch up. I start each morning practicing martial arts because it brings me balance and focus. And I want to know how others stay motivated as well. So join me for conversations on business, innovation, and entrepreneurship. I'm Dan Schulman. Welcome to Never Stand Still. Hi, I'm Dan Schulman, and welcome to Never Stand Still. Today, I'm thrilled to have with me Chip Berg, who is the CEO of Levi Strauss. Uh, Chip, and there you can see it right there, proudly wearing that iconic brand. It's in my contract. It's great. And by the way, it's not in my contract. And you still Every wear it. That's single right. day, I wear my Levi's. I, I was trying to think of the last thousand days I probably have worn Levi's. 990 <laughs> of those, <laughs> maybe more uh, on that. And uh, Chip spent uh, 28 years uh, at P&G um, and uh, joined Levi's in 2011 and uh, has an amazing, really, story uh, to tell uh, in terms of really revitalizing the brand uh, and uh, turning around a lot of what had been happening with this uh, um, company and uh, and all with everything going on in retail right now. So, um, Chip, you again started uh, in 2011. Um, the company had been going through really declining sales uh, for a while. And despite my best efforts to prop up those sales, um, um, you know, it had continued to, to go down. And then you came into the company and really thought about the brand, thought about what was happening. Could you maybe um, tell our audience a little bit about how you started that journey of thinking about what you were going to go do? Not really what you did, but like what was the leadership lessons that you uh, employed as you went into the company? Yeah, uh, first of all, I mean, part of the reason I joined was I saw – in the Levi's brand in particular, one of the most iconic brands in the world. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm a brand building guy yep. when all is said and done. And, you know, looking at the history of the company, which peaked in 1996 at $7.5 billion in sales and then declined to $4 billion in sales mm -hmm. over the next couple of years and just kind of bounced around for the next decade. You know, the company's been around for 165 years. It's one of the Incredible. greatest, you know, original American companies started right here in San Francisco, yep. not very far from where we're sitting right now. And uh, I just saw this latent opportunity to get this brand turned around again. But so when I started, you know, I had my own hypotheses of where the opportunities were. But the first thing I did was I went on a listening tour. Mm -hmm. I sent six questions to the top 60 people in the company, kind of... Uh, you know, what three things do you think we have to keep? What three things have to change? What's the one thing you hope I will do? What's the one thing you're afraid I might do? You know, what piece <laughs> of advice do you have yeah, for me? Yeah. And I did 60 one hour, I, I emailed the questions out in advance and I did 60 um, one hour interviews. And after about 15 interviews, it became really, really clear where some of the issues were. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a clear strategy. People were working against their own functional or business agenda, but nothing was kind of knitted together. So everybody was rowing in a different direction. 
we hadn't been investing in building the brand. We hadn't been investing in innovation. We were really disconnected with the consumer. Our advertising was not working. Yeah. Um, and so there were a lot of just very fundamental issues. Our balance sheet was a mess. We had $2 billion in debt. We were spending more money on interest payments than we were on media globally. Um, so wow. there, there was a lot of low-hanging yeah. fruit to go after. Yeah. And um, you know, probably the toughest thing was prioritizing the sequence of work to go after it and make it then happen. But um, you know, we're back on offense. We were very much on our heels and playing defense. And, and it really was, I think, in the early parts of the 2000s, it was all hands on deck just to pay the interest payments mm. on the debt that yep. we had. Yeah. And uh, we paid off a billion dollars in debt. We're reinvesting back in marketing. We did go through a very difficult restructure where we cut headcount by about 20%, which we needed to do. Yeah. But that it's gave us the oxygen. Yeah. It gave us the oxygen to begin investing back yeah. in the brand and yeah. doing cool things like Levi's Stadium. And now we've got an advertising campaign that we've been running for about four years called Live in Levi's, which really embraces what the essence of this brand is all yeah. about and uh, and back on offense investing in our brands again. Yeah. And it's really paid off. I mean, you're having your highest sales in a decade now. Mm -hmm. um, you've definitely reversed that trend right now. Sure. But within that context, and you and I have talked about this in, in other times that we've met, there's such a changing face of commerce that's mm -hmm. going on right now in retail in general. There's a combination of um, the shift from offline to online. You're even though finding online players shifting into physical retail, into physical yeah. retail um, you're seeing um, um, people now start to do um, in-store kind of brands, not really brand brands mm -hmm. anymore. How are you navigating through that? Like what are the big trends that you're seeing in retail right now, and how are you starting to navigate through that to, in order to just keep the growth that you've seen? Yeah, well, we uh, we um, compete in multiple channels, so we have a big wholesale business. So we yeah. sell, you know, we sell product to Macy's and Kohl's and J.C. Penney and customers like that. We sell to Amazon, pure play e-commerce business. Plus, we also have our own brick and mortar retail, yeah. both mainline doors and outlet doors. And we also have our own e-commerce site. Um, so I would say and one of the things- they know me because I get an email from them almost every single day, by And the way. you open it and, and occasionally and you will buy it. And I right. do buy, yes. Um, so the first big learning <laughs> has been you've got to manage the marketplace as a marketplace. You can't yeah. start competing across channels. Which isn't um, easy, right? Which is not easy, yeah. um, especially on a business as big as ours. Yeah. Um, but- you know, I would say the most important thing is you've got to follow the consumer and where the consumer is going and and how they are choosing to shop. You know, a consumer doesn't roll out of bed and say, you know, today I think is a mainline store day or today is going to be an e-commerce day. Right, right. They're they're shopping on multiple channels kind of all the time. And you've got to have that consistent experience uh, that's consistent across channels. But you also have to give them a reason to want to walk into your store. Um if a consumer knows you're a 5'11 guy and you know you're a 5'11 guy, if we don't give you a reason to walk into our store, yeah. you're going to go to Amazon.com or Kohl's.com or Macy's.com. And, and that's okay. But by giving the consumer a reason to walk into the door, yeah. you know, um, an experience, uh, superior service, 
um, you can still drive traffic into your brick and mortar stores and and then potentially upsell and add more items to the basket. So yeah. we really focus on that while at the same time making sure that when the consumer is in our store, they're getting a very consistent experience from an omni-channel standpoint, because right. they're going to go on their phone and they're going to see, they're going to look at something in our store and they're going to see if they can find a better price somewhere else. And, and that's why managing the marketplace as a holistic yeah. enterprise, if you want to think about it that way, across all the different channels where we compete is really important. And then really putting a focus on giving the consumer an amazing experience yeah. in the areas that we control. Yeah. And our brick and mortar business, it's grown globally um, for the last 12 quarters. Um, we don't report comp store growth, yeah. but yeah. our our total direct-to-consumer business, which is both e-commerce and brick-and-mortar, has grown double-digit now for the last 12 quarters. And, That's amazing. And, and we're digit. doing double-digit yeah. growth globally and consistently growing across all three regions yeah. as we report. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I say this at PayPal all the time, but I think the most successful companies in the world are those that are consumer champion mm -hmm. companies. And yep. that's, you've said that now two or three times, and I couldn't agree with it more. You put the consumer front and center, even if it challenges your own business model, you win over the medium and long term. Yeah. And, it, and if the consumer is challenging your own business model, you better challenge it too. Because, exactly right. Because somebody is going to disrupt you if you don't disrupt yeah. yourself. Yeah. In fact, one of the things that you've done which um, I, I don't know if people realize it's just how much investment in technology you've done. You've done this Eureka Labs. You've done, mm -hmm. you've done these now custom. Yep. You know, I'm wearing them right now. Pair a lot ones. Yeah, yep. yeah. Customized jeans. So, can you talk a little bit about that investment in technology? Because most people wouldn't necessarily think about Levi's and you know a technology lab right. per se. But you've actually really done some very cool, cool things by. Yeah, by looking at that. Can you talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, so I mean, the, this goes all the way back to very early, uh, shortly after I started. Um, we actually had a small innovation lab, but it was over in Turkey, in Chorlu, Turkey. And most of our designers and merchants were here in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So it was planes, trains, and automobiles. And, and so innovation really didn't get a lot of attention. And I also thought, gosh, here we are. At that time, it was the tip of Silicon Valley, the northern right. tip of South. Now it is Silicon Valley, yep. right? Silicon yep. Valley has moved into the city, and we didn't have we didn't have a playground to attract creative talent to work with us, to partner with us. Um, and so, one of the biggest early investments I made was in the Eureka Lab, which is just a couple of blocks away from our headquarters. Uh, it's on Chestnut Street here in the city, and it is effectively a small pilot plant. We've got laundry there. We've got, you know, rolls and rolls, you know, thousands of yards of different types of denim. We've got lasers there, which we've done some pretty cool stuff with here lately. And it gives us an opportunity to really <laughs> experiment and try new technologies. And, you know, it, it became a reason why Google wanted to partner with us mm -hmm. on Project Jacquard, which is an early stage uh, uh, wearable technology where you can control your cell phone from the sleeve of your of your trucker jacket and yeah. you can answer calls you can forward and back and reverse your playlist um but part of the reason google wanted to work with us was one our scale and the fact oh, that we that know is very cool it yeah. is very cool oh, yeah. and, and number two we had this lab where we could build pilot product and mm -hmm. test it in washing machines and stuff like that so 
Probably the biggest innovation, though, that we've been working on, and, and I've said that we need to pivot from being an apparel company that happens to think about technology, that our future is a technology company that happens to make blue jeans. We are quickly becoming wow. a technology company. And so the biggest innovation that we're working on now is a project called FLX, um, which is uh, about finishing denim using lasers. Yeah. It's sustainably far superior than the traditional method. But if you were to buy a pair of jeans like you're wearing, you know, yeah. kind of highly finished, you know, a lot of people like the structure and, you know, the yeah. holes and the yeah, rips yeah. in them. <laughs> no, it, it actually takes today, the way those kind of jeans are made, it takes a human about 20 minutes to make a pair of jeans that look like that. It's all done by hand. Uh-huh. Um, in the future, we're going to be able to do that with a laser in about 90 seconds. Wow. And it will be, It'll be perfect perfectly time, consistent, right? yeah. perfectly consistent every single time. We're now designing all of our products digitally, you know, on a digital yeah. iPad type of yeah. device. So everything's being designed digitally. We're shipping digital files directly to the laser. There's no middleman in between. Yeah. And then digitally producing them with off of a laser. Yeah. And, opens the opportunity to dramatically shorten the supply chain, dramatically shorten the supply chain. We could conceivably have lasers in every distribution center. Yeah. Um, it shortens the time to market. It takes inventory out. It is a majorly disruptive yeah. innovation for us, but I think also for the entire industry. Yeah, it's very cool. One of the things that um, I've seen uh, through all these interviews that I've done is sort of a no pun intended, a common thread, which is that a lot of the CEOs that I talk to have a liberal arts education. I think you went to Lafayette. I did. Um, and, you went to Middlebury, And I right? went to Middlebury. Yeah, exactly. And um, so how do you think that that intersects with um, being a, a leader? Because most people, you know, today, they're all about you need to be able to do engineering or product or whatever, but but a lot of the CEOs are liberal arts backgrounds. Yeah. Your thoughts around that? I just, you know, it's funny. I went back to Lafayette um, for the first time in probably 35 years, just uh -huh. about a year ago. And uh, it was amazing being back on campus. And it did kind of force me to step back and think about what was it about Lafayette that kind of contributed to the person that I am today and yeah. to my success. Yeah. And, and I do think that the liberal arts education forced me or helped create me to become more of an expansive thinker. Um, I think, you know, natural curiosity is a big part of being successful at any level. But yeah. I, I do believe CEOs just have to have this natural inquisitiveness and this constant thirst to want to learn. And I think I got that from my liberal arts education. Um, you know, I wound up majoring in international affairs in part because I, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to major in. And that was <laughs> right. like a combination of yeah. multiple majors. I majored in geography. So, okay. So, yeah, real I didn't close. Know and, yep. um, you know, and then I went into the military after yeah. after college for four yeah. years. And that also kind of so the, the combination of the liberal arts degree from Lafayette and this curiosity and just this thirst for learning and never wanting to stop learning um, and always feeling like there's more to learn. Yeah, you know, that was the other thing. I yeah. always felt like even at the end of the day, if I got an A in a subject, I still felt there was a lot more to learn. Yeah. 
And uh, that combined with kind of the discipline and everything that I got out of the military, the combination of those two things really set me up yeah. for success, I think. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that military experience. You were ROTC, mm-hmm. I think. Yes. Um, and I think you even went to jump school. I did. And then um, you went Jumped out. Jumped out of airplanes. Yep. Perfectly yep. good airplanes. Yep, yep. Were you perfectly good at jumping out of them as well? I, I was. Okay, I good. Survived it. <laughs> exactly. And then you went into the Army as an officer uh, for, I think you just said, four years. How did that experience as being an officer in the Army um, prepare you for leadership roles as well? Because we think a lot about hiring veterans, et cetera, but uh, I'd love to hear what it did for you. I mean, I, I, I can sit here right now and honestly say I wouldn't be sitting here today if I hadn't spent four years in the military. Um, it really did make me who I am as a leader. Um, it made me really learn leadership kind of firsthand. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I actually wrote an article which is posted on LinkedIn and it's flying around the Internet. Uh, and I wrote this about almost 20 years ago, I think, the 10 lessons I learned from being a military officer. And number one was always eat last, you know, take care of your mm-hmm. troops. We were talking right before we went on air. You know, yeah. number seven is never dig in and defend, which is kind of never like never stand still. You yeah. know, I, and when I wrote the article, I said if you dig a foxhole and you're standing in a foxhole, you've just dug your own grave. Yeah, you know, you've got to be moving. And uh, when in doubt, you know, number six is when in doubt, attack. Right. Um, always have a plan B. Uh, another one of the lessons was called walk the track park which was military for, you can always determine a well-disciplined organization or a disciplined organization by walking through their track park where they kept their tanks or their mm-hmm. vehicles mm-hmm. and were they perfectly lined up, were they topped off with gas, were they ready to go to war if the balloon went off, yeah. uh, as they yeah. proverbially say. Yeah. Um, but you know, probably the biggest thing I learned was, you know, I, I when I was commissioned, I was a second lieutenant. And when I got over to Germany after officer basic school, I had a platoon sergeant who reported to me, who was a, a staff sergeant. I had four plat- uh, squad leaders who reported to him and to me. All five of them were Vietnam veterans. You know, this was 1979. It was not long after the Vietnam War. These yeah. guys had had bullets flying over their heads in real life. And just because I was a second lieutenant and they were supposed to salute me and call me sir didn't necessarily earn their respect. And I had to earn their respect. Um, And one of the other lessons is never ask a soldier to do something you yourself wouldn't do or couldn't couldn't do. And, um, you know, so through those kind of uh, through four years of that kind of experience and it was it was in West Germany at the time, still West Germany during the Cold War. My unit um, patrolled the east-west border twice a year. Um, you know, we were stationed about 20 or 25 kilometers from the east-west border. And if the balloon went up, the Russian hordes were going to come across yeah. through the Fulda Gap. And we were one of the first lines of defense. So it was real. And yeah. it grows you up pretty quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I love those lessons. Can you email me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll sure look will. up at uh, LinkedIn as well. You know, um, you also have taken a bunch of bold stances as well uh, as a CEO. Um, 
both of us are known a little bit as being activist CEOs. Mm -hmm. We're willing to take a stand. You've done some in both well, wellness and well-being, but you've taken stands on um, supply chain, environmental issues, mm -hmm. supply chain well-being. Can you talk a little bit about why you do that? And, um, you know, some people always ask me, like, why, why are you taking a stance on something? And um, I talk about it being part and parcel of the values of our company. I'm curious, you know, why you also take such an active stand on some very important issues of yeah. our day. It really, it, it does get back to the values of the company. I mean, this is a company, Levi Strauss and Company, like I said, it's been around 165 years. And through our history, um, we have a long tradition of being very values-based, very values-driven, and not being afraid to stick our neck out on important social issues yeah. of the day. And um, I mean, when Levi Strauss, the man himself, made his first profit, he contributed part of it to an orphanage here in San Francisco. And we still give a lot of money philanthropically through the Levi Strauss Foundation. But, um, but our history is kind of, um, it's a proud history of where the company has taken stands. We desegregated our plants in the South 10 years before it was the law of the land. I love that. We um, you know, provided healthcare for same-sex partners long before other companies did that. We were on the early front lines of the HIV AIDS crisis here in San Francisco when that first erupted and our CEO stood in the lobby of our building handing out pamphlets to all the employees about HIV AIDS. This one is uh, really recent, actually, but in the 1990s, when the Boy Scouts um, banned gay troop leaders, yep. we withdrew all of our funding from the Boy Scouts. And over the next week, this was before the internet, the company was flooded, 100,000 pieces of mail, 97,000 people opposed to the company's position. Yep. And you know, fast forward now 20 some odd years, and you look at that and you go, History proved us right. Yep. You know, we were on the right side of the issue. It just took a while for everybody else to catch up to it. And now the Boy Scouts have dropped the name boy from the yeah. Scouts. Yeah. So, um, so I think it's a responsibility. And I do believe we are in an era now where, you know, being the CEO gives you a platform. And I think of it not so much about me as an individual, but the responsibility of the office of the CEO to have the guts, to have the courage, to take a stand on important issues that are affecting our world. Yep. And, and to not be afraid, you gotta have thick skin to do it. Um, we, asked, we asked gun owners to not bring a gun into our stores because we have a, an employee policy, they can't bring guns into stores and in states with open carry laws, our, our, our employees were concerned. Yep. And then we had somebody literally shoot themselves in, their foot, in the foot in one of our stores and that was it. It was like, you don't need a weapon to try on a pair of jeans. So, um, so we're not afraid to take a stand and we're not afraid to stand up for the right thing. You know, just recently the immigration ban and uh, DACA or yeah. two other issues, which we took a big hard line stand on. The worker well-being program is something that's really near and dear to my heart. You know, we make our product all over the world, but it's largely in third world developing yep. countries. It is mostly women who make our product. If you've ever been to an apparel com company or to an apparel uh, factory, you know, the building might be 100 meters long 
and you've just got, it's piece part work. Yep. It's basically assembly line work where you've got people sewing, sewing. and putting together yep. a pair of pants. And, um, and uh, these are poor towns and villages where a lot of these people live. And we th- believe that we had an opportunity to work with the factory owners. We don't own most of our factories. We work through third party vendors to work with the factory owners uh, to give these workers a better life, basically. And and so we piloted this through the Levi Strauss Foundation. We provided the funding initially to pilot it, but we knew that it needed to be sustainable. We needed to prove that there was yep. a business case that the factory owners would say, this makes sense for me to invest in. So we ran these pilots, which we funded to, to demonstrate that business case that if you invest in your workers, and it, it varied from country to country what, yep. what was required. You know, in, in, in one country, it might have been um, financial literacy and helping the women establish banking relationships. Yep. In another country, it might have been childcare. Um, so from factory to factory, the specific needs varied. Um, but we demonstrated pretty consistently a 3 to $4 return on every dollar invested. So now it is a sustainable program. We're now saying, if you want to do business with us, yep. Mr. Factory Owner, we expect you to have this worker well-being program yep. in place. And I've met with a couple of the CEOs of some of our partners, and it's had an amazing impact on a couple of them. I mean, one, one company um, down in Mexico basically changed their mission by seeing the impact that they could have, not just on their workers, but in the community around them by making these investments in their workers' lives. They've got happier workers. And and the reason there's this return is people come back to work every day and they don't want to leave. They like it. So if you're running an assembly line with a, a thousand sewing machines, if 50 people don't show up, you got a problem. Yeah. And and so they've got higher retention, much lower turnover, more engaged employees, higher levels of productivity, and that's where they yeah. saw the return on investment. I love that story. So now it's we've so reached good. we've reached 150,000 people. Yeah. Um, we've now open sourced it. So we've said to our competitors or to anybody else who's got a supply chain, we got to learn, yeah. We got a playbook. Yeah. Um, and the Harvard School of Business Health is doing a case study on it now, too, yeah. and, and kind of providing some external validation around the business case. Yeah. I, and I bet um, the result of that is um, you also have employees that are so proud yeah. uh, to work uh, for the company. For and sure. when you have employees that rally behind your mission and your values and they see you taking those values and turning them into action as opposed to hanging up on a wall, yep. then they're inspired. Well, and you know that San Francisco is a pretty tough job market. And yep. you know most of our employees, unless you're a designer or uh, maybe a merchant, the, the skill set is pretty fungible. And they can pretty much go anywhere they want right now in San Francisco. And mm-hmm. one of the things that does keep a lot of our employees loyal to Levi Strauss is the values of the company. And they see that we're not afraid to take a hard stand or to stick our neck out and stand up for the things that really matter most. So this show, um, part of it, or what inspired it for me, was to talk to people I admire and and great leaders and to find out not only what their thoughts were around what made them successful, but also the challenges that they had um, and this whole idea of, you know, 
you're always going to be hit in life, um, regardless of whether you stand still or not. You're going to get hit. And then how do you recover from that? Yep. And what are some of those lessons? And I think it would be really instructive, Jim, um, for, you know, the people who are watching this to hear, you know, times where you've actually had some doubts and have um, have maybe even fallen and how you got back up and how you, you know, kept going to, to where you are now. Yeah, I, I mean... Nobody's perfect. So, I mean, the first place my head went to when you asked this question yeah. is my first marriage, which failed. Yeah. Um, and actually, I, I do. And I learned from it. I mean, we were standing still, you know, and if a relationship isn't getting better, it doesn't really stand still. Yeah. It starts getting worse. And, yeah. and over time, that's basically what happened in my first marriage. And that was that was tough. tough. I wasn't yeah. sure if I'd ever get back up. And uh I, I did. I wound up pouring myself back into my work, but you know, fast forward, I remarried uh, 13 and a half years ago to an incredible woman, and we've got a nine-year-old daughter. And That's so great, you know. So I got a second chance, and I've been hell bent and determined to make sure that the trend line in our marriage is always going up, and it's not standing still. Or, yeah. Because yeah. if you think it's standing still, it's really not. Probably it's going, going down, down yeah. right? Yeah. So. So that's the first place my head went. Um, from a career standpoint, I've had a lot of mistakes. Um, probably the story that I like to tell, that is, it's a little bit of a chuckle now in hindsight, but I was a brand manager on Duncan Hines baking mixes. <laughs> and uh, this is back in the uh, early 1990s. And, you know, moms weren't staying at home anymore and they weren't baking birthday cakes anymore for their kids. They would just go to Kroger or Safeway or whatever and buy yeah. the birthday cake there. And, you know, now birthday parties have gotten completely out of control. But but so they weren't baking from baking mixes anymore. Yeah. So we had developed this incredibly cool idea of shaped cake kits with a shaped pan that would be pre-included. And the pan was made out of like a thick corrugated, kind of like a chinette plate. Yeah. And it was shaped in different characters. So we had like Mickey Mouse, we had licensing arrangements with Disney, with um, Kermit the Frog, with Major League Baseball, with yeah. the NFL. So we had all these cake kits with these cardboard. We had tested this thing extensively. We ran a test market in Cincinnati, tested it in our labs, test market in Cincinnati, off the chart successful. Um, and the cake kits came with not just the pan, but the baking mix, the frosting, cardboard cutouts so you could make Miss Piggy. You yeah. could make Kermit the Frog. So everything was looking great. We went into a real live, large, what, what was called a Basie's test market back then, working with Nielsen Basie's yeah. down in the South. And um, the product had been in market no more than two days. And our consumer services call center started getting phone calls that the cake pans we're catching fire, fire in some consumers' ovens. And we literally almost burned down a consumer's house. I mean, Ugh. literally, the, the draperies were on fire, and if there <laughs> hadn't been fire extinguishers in the house, we might have done some real serious damage. I, I honestly thought I was going to get fired. I yeah. mean, I, I thought it was over, because we had tested this thing every which way from Sunday. Um, out of this comes a learning, though. So, uh, so we decided, let's buy the ovens from these consumers who have had problems. Let's ship them up to our lab. Let's understand what happened here. Mm -hmm. Lo and behold, what did we discover? 
that the thermostat on these ovens was broken. didn't work. So they would set it for 350 and the oven would go to 800 degrees or yeah. something. Yeah. And the cake pan works perfectly fine at 350 degrees, right. but not so much at 800 yeah. degrees. How the consumer- Imagine the rest of their food. I, I mean, they were cooking their holiday turkey in 25 <laughs> right. minutes or something, right. but- and The um, early iteration of the microwave. Anyway, so I, I, I literally thought I was going to get fired, but because we had to do an, ex, an, an expensive recall. Oh, yeah. We had to take product off of the shelf. We had to ask consumers to send their product back. We had to publicize it. You know, on the evening sure, news, we had to course. say Duncan Hines is running a recall. I mean, not good for brand building, right? And I thought that was it. I was done. And But however, I will tell you, that lesson has stayed with me so long that when we were, we talked about the Google jacket earlier. Yeah. And... And I said, we've got to start slow on this because, you know, we've never done wearable technology before. So we'll do a couple hundred pieces in the first, a couple hundred units in the first, because like, what if it catches fire? I mean, right. that's the first thing that went through my head is well, we yeah. don't want to like you burn don't somebody's forearm, yeah. right? Yeah. Thank heavens, touch wood, that has not happened. Right. But, you know, it, and, and always have a plan B as a leader was one of my military lessons. Yeah. And, you know, you've planned for the worst and hope for the best, yeah. right? And we just, we thought we had been completely checked out on the pre-market qualification yeah. of this, and we weren't, as it turned out. Yeah, such an interesting, amusing now, but interesting yeah. story. But Chip, I want to thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure getting together. It's great to see and you, And thank Dan. you for being here. Thank you very much. Yeah. Great to see you. Yeah, good to see you too.